Good morning, church. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a little while now. And one thing that I have failed to bring up as often as I should is the title of this series. Of course, it might seem completely unnecessary to have a series title when all you're doing is going through a book of the Bible. But the series title is shorthand. Shorthand for me to what I think the the book of Matthew is about. Matthew's greatest argument. It's the point of the book, distilled down to just a couple of words. Our series title is Jesus Revealed. And if you've noticed our sermon title today, you'll see that Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30 is all about Jesus revealing. He is the great revealer. He makes known what is hidden. That's what revelation is, by the way. Without revelation, God would be unknown. Revelation is making God who is naturally hidden to us known. And that's exactly what Jesus comes to do. He comes to make the Father known. Our preparation for worship today hit on this point when Jesus said, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. This is who Jesus is and what he does. He reveals God to us in a way that had never been done before. Jesus is God incarnate, the great revealer, but he is also God's greatest revelation. So if you can remember all the way back to December of 2022, we started this series of Matthew during Advent. And in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Matthew tells us the whole point of his gospel. 22 and 23 of Matthew chapter 1 says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus, God himself, had come to dwell with man. And in our text today, Jesus emphasizes that truth. So let's stand together and read Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Again, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Be seated. 
Lord, we come to you now for wisdom, for your revelation to understand it. Lord, we confess today that in our natural ability, we are unable to understand it. So we pray now that you would give us your spirit, that he would illuminate the scriptures for us, that we might learn and mold and shape our lives to your word and to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we heard from John the Baptist. John had been in prison for a while. And he was struggling with understanding Jesus' ministry so far. So he sent a delegation to find out what Jesus was up to. Jesus wasn't bringing the judgment that John the Baptist had expected he would bring. But Jesus calms John's anxiety by pointing to his teaching and to his works, which were things only God could do. Jesus confirms for John that he is the Christ. But then Jesus turned to the crowds and talked to them about John. You see, John was Elijah, the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. But the generation that John and Jesus preached to failed to join in. They were like children at play who failed to dance when their friends played music. Jesus' criticism of the crowds pours over into judgment in our text today because they aren't just missing out on a fun game. They're failing to receive God's revelation. So this is the big question that unites our text today, verses 20 through 30. To whom does Jesus reveal the Father? To whom does Jesus reveal the Father? And our text gives us four groups. First, Jesus reveals the Father to those who repent. Verse 20 says that right after he compared this generation to sad children unwilling to play with their friends, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. When we use the word denounce today, it usually means that we're declaring that we think or believe that something is bad. But this word translated as denounce is somewhere closer to rebuke or call out. Jesus is about to pronounce judgment in the form of lament. And notice the reason why. Matthew tells us Jesus denounces the cities because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Jesus' base of operations during his ministry in Galilee was in the town of Capernaum, on the far north side of the Sea of Galilee. That's, that's the region Jesus focused on. And remember, we're told at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus went to preach in all their cities. Chorazin was only about an hour's walk north of Capernaum. In many ways, it was a sister city. Jesus would have spent a lot of time here, and some commentators believe that Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount was given closer to Chorazin than it was to Capernaum. Bethsaida was another close city just across the Jordan River from Capernaum. It was where Peter, Andrew, and Philip were all originally from. We learn about that in John chapter 1. Jesus also spent a lot of time in Bethsaida with his disciples. So together, Chorazin and Bethsaida had the privilege of witnessing many of the mighty works of Jesus and hearing many of the great teachings of Jesus. Miracles were performed in these cities. Great sermons and teachings were given here, clear ones from Jesus. 
If any two cities besides Capernaum, which we'll get to, if any two cities should have understood Jesus' message and responded appropriately, it should have been these two, Chorazin and Bethsaida, but they didn't. They failed to recognize that Jesus' mighty works accompany his primary message. His primary message, of course, is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what Jesus has been preaching everywhere he goes since chapter 4. And for that, because they fail to recognize and heed Jesus' words, Jesus pronounces woe upon them. Woe is a statement of grief and lament. Your translation might have something a little bit different. It's the language of Isaiah, which is a common theme throughout this chapter. We can read the book of Isaiah all over Matthew chapter 11. Isaiah pronounces woe 29 times in his book. Jesus understands that the townsfolk in these two towns who failed to heed Jesus' message will not be spared in the judgment. He even says that the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon would have a more bearable day than Chorazin and Bethsaida when judgment comes. He says in verse 21, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes which is a pretty shocking statement. Tyre and Sidon were major cities at the time of Christ and for the Roman Empire. They were port towns on the northern coast of Israel in modern-day Jordan. Both are still there today. But Tyre and Sidon are even more ancient than the time of Christ. Tyre is first mentioned all the way back in the book of Joshua. And Sidon is first mentioned in the book of Genesis. They were major cities of the Canaanites, known as the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians warred with Israel for millennia. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Amos all independently pronounced judgment against these two cities, Tyre and Sidon. And these two cities came to represent for the people of God opposition to him, arrogant opposition to God. Isaiah 23 is a particularly strong judgment against the city of Tyre, which says in verse 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed it it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. So these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, symbols of pride and arrogance against God and the imaginations of the people of Israel would have repented if Jesus had done his miracles there instead of in Chorazin and Bethsaida. They would have repented with great mourning over their sin, even dressing in sackcloth and putting ashes on their head, just like the inhabitants of Nineveh did when Jonah brought them the message of repentance. Tyre and Sidon would have repented. What does that say about Chorazin and Bethsaida? Are they not more arrogant to reject the message that would have brought Tyre and Sidon to repentance? But if that comparison is troubling for the people hearing Jesus right now, we should read verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Sodom would have remained to this day, Jesus says, if he had performed his mighty works there instead of in Capernaum. Sodom is the most wicked city to ever exist. Maybe an argument can be made for some modern ones, right? God chose to send fire out of heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That was better than to let them keep on existing. We can read about that in Genesis 19. But Jesus says that they would have responded in faith and so saved their city if Jesus had but performed his miracles there instead of Capernaum. Sodom would have still been around today, Jesus says. If they had the same privilege as Capernaum in hearing the message of repentance. Jesus asks Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Seems like this city thought a lot of itself, that would, they would reach God on their own, maybe that their righteousness was enough. But Jesus says, you will be brought down to Hades, the place of the dead, because they were dead still in their sins. Capernaum thought it was full of life, but really it was the road to hell, and that shouldn't have been the case. Of course, most of the miracles in the book of Matthew so far have occurred in the city of Capernaum. Healing after healing and miracle after miracle and teaching after teaching. But did Capernaum come to Jesus in repentance? Did they heed his message? No. But they were excited about Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 31 told us that Jesus' fame spread throughout all that district. They responded to Jesus' claims of authority with amazement. But did that move their hearts to repentance? Did Jesus' popularity bring people to recognize him as God? No. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum all had the amazing privilege of hearing Jesus' teaching and seeing Jesus' miracles. Jesus didn't go to these pagan cities, Tyre, Sidon, but the cities he did go to failed to respond appropriately. And because of their failure to repent, judgment day will be better for for these pagan cities than for them. So those who are privileged to hear the good news of Jesus to experience his goodness, especially in his community, and who fail to repent of their sins will be judged harsher than pagans who never got to experience Jesus, who never heard the message. Your proximity to godliness and the gospel makes you more accountable to it. One commentator said, It's going to go better in the judgment day for notorious pagans than for self-satisfied saints. Of course, someone isn't truly a saint if they haven't repented. But they might be in their own minds. And that's exactly the problem with these cities. They thought Jesus was a pretty cool guy for what he could do for them. They were willing to make him famous for a little while 
like a sideshow at a circus, but they weren't willing to listen to his message and take it to heart. They were unable to comprehend that it was Emmanuel, God with us, even with them doing these mighty deeds. And so if we want to know the Father, if we want to have a real relationship with God, it has to start with repentance. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Repentance is what Jesus is looking for. Jesus does not reveal the Father to those who are self-justified in their own minds. He doesn't reveal the Father to those who just want him for what he can do for them. And he doesn't reveal the Father to those who only want some of his message, but not all of it. Jesus reveals the Father to the repentant, the repentant in heart, who embrace his whole message of repentance in light of the coming kingdom. Second, Jesus reveals the Father to little children. After Jesus denounces the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, he offers a prayer to the Lord, verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. There's so much going on in this little prayer. So let's go, go through it word by word and phrase by phrase. Jesus starts off by thanking God, which can also be translated as, as praise or confession or acknowledgement. Jesus is offering a prayer of joyful praise to God for something. And notice that Jesus calls him both Father and Lord of Heaven, both together. Both are true. God is both relationally close as Father, and He is both God of the whole universe. He is Father and Lord of Heaven and Earth. And significantly, Jesus addresses Him as Father here. Back in chapter 6, Jesus gave His disciples the Lord's Prayer, which taught them to pray, Our Father, together. But here Jesus calls him his own father, which he'll do again later. Because, of course, Jesus is the son of God. So what does Jesus thank his father for? He says, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Jesus praises the father for his work in hiding and in revealing these things. So what are these things? Well, coming right on the tales of 20 through 24, the pronouncement of judgment, these things are nothing less than the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These things are the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate. So God chose to hide these things from the wise and the understanding. Jesus praises God that he did this. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will or good pleasure. Let that settle into your heart for a second. It was God's good pleasure, his gracious will to hide these truths from those who consider themselves wise in the world and full of understanding. 
And it was his good pleasure to open them up, to reveal them to little children. That's what God does. He keeps himself from those who think too highly of themselves, who consider themselves particularly intelligent. But he reveals himself to little children. The phrases little children and little ones occur several times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and they're interchangeable for Jesus. They reference the same things. At the end of chapter 10, we learn little ones referred to Jesus' disciples. Jesus uses the idea of children to teach his disciples who they should be like. They shouldn't think of themselves as great intellectuals first, deserving revelation because of their big giant brains. They should seek to be like little children. And Jesus will make that explicit in Matthew 18. He calls a literal child to himself and he places him in the middle of his disciples. You remember this? And he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We cannot approach God as if our salvation is based on our wisdom and our knowledge. As if our intellect makes us worthy of him. In fact, the wise of this world, the great smart people, can only come to the Father through a lowly evaluation of themselves, like little children, humble and unlearned. God reveals himself to the humble. God is only known through a humble faith. Little children don't know very much. They need to be taught everything. And likewise, only those who take on a spirit of humility and repentance will understand that the gap between them and God because of their sin is so wide that nothing can bridge that gap. Not their reason, not their intellect, not their education, but only Christ. If we come to God thinking that we know all about him, and so we don't need Jesus, We'll think we have what it takes to have a relationship with God apart from him. But that is a fatal error. Because third, Jesus reveals the Father to whomever the Son chooses. I'd like to point out that I did my absolute best to be grammatically correct here using words like whom and whomever. I looked it up. And I think I'm right. But if you are really into grammar, and I've used these wrong, please, I invite you to keep it to yourself. (laughs) I did my best. (laughs) Moving on. After his short prayer, Jesus turns back to the crowd, and he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. Which is a very similar statement to what Jesus will say at the very end of this book. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Jesus is making a similar statement of authority here with specific reference to how you know God. Revelation. What is all things here? All things have been handed over to me. It's the same as these things. The revelation of the Father in the gospel. The means to be reconciled to God. All of that, all of that has been handed over to Jesus Christ. And Jesus significantly says again, it has been given to me by my Father. Notice the Son of God language. Jesus is making another claim to divinity here. The authority that he has to reveal the Father is an extension of his divinity. This is what Jesus does. The purpose of Jesus' incarnation was to reveal God to man. He reveals the Father. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is rooted in his relationship with the Father. Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And at this point in the story, no one really did know that Jesus was truly the Son of God, holy and eternal, co-equal with the Father, except the other members of the Trinity, Father and Holy Spirit. But this is a, a statement of relationship. Jesus and the Father have a unique, eternal relationship in the Trinity. No one knows the Son like the Father, period. And likewise, no one really knows the Father except the Son. So in a Trinitarian, doctrinal, wonderful sense, the relationship between the Father and the Son is deeper than any human relationship and all human comprehension. These are two persons of the same essence. Praise God. We might not know what to do with that in our brains, but our hearts should be moved to worship God because of it. Amen? God the Father and God the Son. But as regard truth and revelation, look again at what Jesus says about us. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Son, Jesus Christ, sovereignly chooses the people he reveals the Father to. Which is a startling sentence to find in the Gospel of Matthew. It's more like something John would say in his gospel. In fact, John says a lot of things like this in his gospel. Listen to some of the claims Jesus makes in the gospel of John about his relationship with the Father. I'm going to fire these off in rapid succession, so just let them hit you. John 1:18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 6.46 says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father come to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. John 7.29, I know him for I come from him and he sent me. John 8.19 says, They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. 
John 14.10 says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And of course, right before John 14.11, Jesus says in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus says that he chooses to reveal the Father to whom he wills, that's just a statement of who he is. Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus himself is the greatest revelation of God to man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Praise the Lord. Jesus himself is God with us. God can only be known through Jesus Christ, and we cannot approach God apart from him. It is not possible. Jesus is not a secondary addition to God. That's nice to have, but kind of unnecessary if you really want to know him. Without Jesus, you cannot go know God at all. Without Jesus, you cannot know God at all. Unless you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith, there's no possibility of reconciliation with God. The Son reveals the Father to whomever the Son chooses to reveal him, which make verses 28 through 30 so powerful. Fourth, Jesus reveals the Father to the wearied and the burdened. Right Right after Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, he says, come to me, which just floors me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Son who reveals the Father calls the weary to himself. Can there be a better statement to clear up any confusion now verse 27, to whom does the Son choose to reveal the Father to? Those who labor and are heavy laden. Let's talk about those two phrases. There's two ways we can understand what Jesus means here by those who labor and those who are heavy laden. The first sense is it's all those crushed by the weight of sin all those crushed by the worries of life. The burdens and sins of life crush us under its weight and we struggle to labor to carry them. In fact, we find it impossible. Think of poor Christian at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress who is crushed under the weight of his burden before he starts his journey. But when he comes to the cross, what happens? burden falls off. Read the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. So it is with all of us coming to the cross, we find our burden lifted. Jesus Christ gives those crushed by the weight of sin his Sabbath rest. Those who have labored under the pains of sin and death find rest and life in Jesus Christ. Their burden is taken from them. Praise the Lord. Are you crushed under the weight of life today? Are you 
burdened by your sin and your guilt, come to Jesus and he will give you rest. Another complementary way to understand these two phrases is through the lens of the law. Remember Jesus' original audience. All those who labor under the law, especially all of the rules and regulations set up by the Pharisees and the scribes, all those who labor under the law in order to have a right relationship with the Father find the weight of that burden crushing. They are unable to do enough, they find. Unable to do enough works. Unable to keep the law like they should. But Jesus says, all those weighed down by the works of the law, especially all those extra ones, should come to him and he will give them rest. Jesus lets us rest from the works of the law. We no longer struggle to make ourselves righteous. Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. Amen? Do you feel the weight of your sin on your shoulders and your inability to do anything about it? Have you been trying to carry your own righteousness around? Come to Jesus and he will give you rest. But notice verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Specifically, Jesus is giving us a call to discipleship. It's not a call to end the work. It's a call to a different kind of work, discipleship. Learn from me. The yoke of the law is heavy upon the shoulders of those who would try to keep it. The yoke of the law is oppressive and impossible to carry. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So unlike the yoke of self-righteousness and sin and the law, Jesus' yoke is a burden easy to carry. So let's dig into that. Jesus is using a work analogy here. This is a favorite phrase of Christians for thousands of years, but let's try to really understand it. It's, a, it's about manual labor. There are two common types of yokes in the time of Christ. One was an, an animal yoke that two, uh, two animals were joined together with in order to perform one work. So it could be Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you as in yoke yourself to me, which is comforting. And that could be the case. These types of yokes are referred to in other places of the scriptures, like when Paul says not to yoke yourself to an unbeliever. But there's another kind of yoke that fits Jesus' analogy a little bit better. On top of the animal yoke, there was also a yoke that enabled individual workers to carry heavy loads by themselves. It dispersed the weight across the shoulders. Lowly servants, slaves even, use these types of yokes the most. This was rough, back-breaking manual labor. Jesus says that this burden that people carry is too heavy. It's crushing them. It is oppressive. So lay down the yoke of your old master, 
self-righteousness, sin, and the law, and take up the yoke of your new master, Jesus Christ. This is a yoke that is possible to carry because here's the truth. You will be carrying a yoke. Either we will carry the yoke of sin and death, a hard yoke that is impossibly heavy for us, or we will carry the yoke of the better master as we are servants and disciples, workers for Christ. That's the imagery at play here, servants and masters. Jesus is saying he is a gentle and lowly master. He's telling us who he is here in his heart, so listen carefully. Jesus says he's gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus doesn't pretend to be gentle and lowly. Jesus is gentle and lowly. Jesus is not harsh. He is not reactionary and quick to anger. Jesus does not ridicule you or berate you for not doing a good job. When we take Jesus' yoke upon us, he is gentle with us. Praise God. He treats us with kindness and he teaches us how to carry it. And Jesus is not above that. He's not above teaching us. He doesn't expect us to have it all figured out. That's why he says, and learn from me. He is lowly. He lowers himself to us and takes us by the hand to help us in the work. Jesus, the eternal God, creator of the universe, humbled himself in his incarnation, condescending to our level to be God with us, Emmanuel. And he even humbles himself to the point of death on the cross. Jesus is lowly in heart, humble to teach the ignorant. That's what Jesus is calling us to hear, to learn from him. He wants us to learn what God would reveal to us. He wants us to be his disciples. And disciples of Jesus Christ find rest for their souls. Praise the Lord. When we take upon us Jesus' yoke, the yoke of the gospel of grace, we find true rest in our inner self. Isn't that an astounding thought? The yoke of the gospel, the easy and light yoke of Jesus Christ gives us rest in our souls. That's what we would find if we would come to Jesus. First, we need to see ourselves as belabored and heavy laden. Recognize the yoke that we are carrying. We need to recognize our weariness and we need to see the burden of sin and self-righteousness on our shoulders because Jesus reveals the Father to the weary. He reveals the Father to the weighed down. Are you weighed down today? Are you weighed down by life? Even if you are a Christian today, that could be true of you. Are you carrying around something the Father wants you to lay down at the foot of the cross? Are you carrying hurt and unforgiveness? Are you carrying guilt for sin that has already been paid for? Are you crushed by worry and anxiety? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. And that is a promise. 
Remember your Savior, who is himself your rest and your peace. To whom does the Son reveal the Father? He reveals him to the repentant and the humble. He reveals him to whom he wills. And he reveals him to the burdened. Is that you? Come to Jesus and know God for the first time today if you have not laid down the weight of your sin and taken up the yoke of God's rest. Believe the gospel, repent and believe. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, God with us. Let's pray. Lord, many of us here today, even longtime believers, are weighed down by something, crushed under the weight of something. Lord, for those in this room today who have not placed their faith in you, who are crushed by the weight of sin, the weight of death, Lord, we pray that you would move in their hearts to place their faith in you for the first time that they would believe the gospel. Unlike the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, they would respond to the message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Lord, for us today who have believed and who are Christians, who are feeling weighed down, whether that's because of the, the season, the holiday season coming up, or life circumstance, or whatever it might be, Lord, we trust in the promise that you are our rest that in you we can truly find rest for our souls. We pray for that today eagerly. In Jesus' name, amen.